Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series. In this podcast, award-winning actor Marty Ray talks Shakespeare with the Abbey Theatre's community and education manager, Phil Kingston. Marty talks about making sense of Iago, being understood at Rada, and unlocking the soundscape of Shakespeare's dramatic verse and what that reveals about Othello, about Richard, about mad Queen Margaret and the way she might look at you. Marty and Phil talk about language at length and lengthy language, the physicality of it, the punctuation of violence, the release of cursing, and there's plenty of that in this, but even that gets examined in the psychoanalysis of cursing alongside the comfort of Swedish melancholia and the words that break your heart. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Marty Ray. Thank you. Uh, we're sitting here in the control room of the Abbey Theatre and, and we're looking down on the set of Othello, mm-hmm. where at the moment they're recording some music for The Wake, mm-hmm. which is the play that's going to follow it. So if there's some uh, interesting warbling in the background, that's what's going on. <laughs> So now look, um, I'm, I'm going to dive in, um, Marty. In Othello, yeah, the point where Othello leaves for Cyprus, and the night that I watched it, yeah. um, Peter Macon is playing Othello. He kind of sends people off with their duties, and the last person he talks to is Iago, <laughs> and he slaps Iago on the side of the uh, uh, of his body on, on his forearm, sort of yeah. in a very hail fellow well met way. You know, go and do this. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. your job. Yeah. And the night that I saw it, Iago reaches up to reciprocate that manly gesture <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. and is left standing. Yeah. And he has to swallow that moment. Yeah. And, and it just made me think, it was kind of quite tender, quite yeah. thwarted. Um, and it made me think, what is Iago's attitude towards Othello? Does mm. he love him? I know. Yeah, I mean, this question has been talked about for such a long time now, hasn't it? Hundreds of years, but um, yeah, I think I think there must be something. He, I think when the whole idea of jealousy, cause Iago obviously suffers jealousy really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if someone can incite jealousy or spot jealousy in someone else so quickly and so perfectly, you must know it personally yourself. I think, and I think Iago suffers very badly from jealousy and he's certainly jealous of Cassio I don't know how you could d- disagree with that and with Othello I think it isn't jealousy's the nature of jealousy is hating a thing so much but loving it as well like wanting it and um, I think Othello is an awful lot of things that, that Iago wants to be I think the other thing I started discovering playing it was that Iago wasn't necessarily all the things that he th- thinks he is. Maybe he's not as great a soldier as he thinks he is. Maybe he's not worthy of the position that Cassio got over him. And that Othello made a proper choice. He picked the better man for the, the better job. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe he was, and maybe Iago was never. Maybe they're not as kind of as close. Maybe Othello doesn't see them as kind of as brothers in arms, as close as what Iago thinks that they ca- that they were. Okay. Yeah. And those little moments of that kind of stuff, of just missed moments of something. I think it's a lot to do with loneliness as well, maybe, or the wanting to belong. There's definitely that. And a working class chip on his shoulder, and that Othello was an outsider who has reached such heights, you know. 
that they could have been close, they could have been, they could have shared that, you know. That's why the accent was a very important thing. So tell us a little bit about that. Is that that's your native accent? Is it that you? you it do? was an accent that I was uh, around as a child, um, and I, that I never had. I never had it very, very strongly. Uh, kind of a working class West Belfast accent. My parents did all right, but I had grown up in Armagh until I was eleven. Then we moved back to Belfast, and. I left again when I was 19. So I was there quite a short amount of time when you think of it. Um, but it's very much an accent to me that, I don't know, that fitted with someone who was that angry. So Belfast to me is like, a, is like a, it's funny, I was listening to uh, David Arden being interviewed, I think it was an Abbey thing about mm. Cypress Avenue. And he said something along the lines of that he had been living in Glasgow for a load of years recently and he feels that he doesn't he isn't sure if he has the right to write about Belfast anymore because the Belfast that he's writing about is of his childhood. Mm. That he's out of touch with it now. I've been out of Belfast nearly twenty years and I don't have that much to do with it since I left it. Mm-hmm. And And the Belfast maybe that I'm that I remember it was definitely like violence and the threat of violence was was um, was currency mm-hmm. and uh, it was in the news all the time it was in the street all the time it was uh, you know in the newspapers all the time but it, then it became you know it kind of it punctuated daily conversation all the time mm-hmm. Um. So there was a hardness, and there's a hardness, and there's an anger in it, and there's a there's a push against resistance in it. Um, obviously, because you know there was a kind of a a freedom fighting thing happening. There was a a sense that p- some people felt that there was an oppression going on, and a civil kind of struggle thing happening. And I think Iago feels that he is having to push against. A resistance as well, something stopping him. That's why it kind of made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And, and for you, was there an urge to get away from that environment? Was yeah. There, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What were you looking for? Or you just wanted to get away? I just wanted to get away, I think. Mm-hmm. I got very tired of it, I remember. Kind of 1920, kind of going, everything is so hard. I mean, very funny as well. I mean, Belfast people could be very funny. But, um, even the even the comedy, even the sense of humour, there's like a cruelty to it. And uh which I think I have as well. But just after a time, yeah, I was kinda of feeling like, oh God, I'm so tired of this. Having to put up with it all the time. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not in a big massive way, just kinda of going, Ah, oh, lads, can we stop the constant slagging? Like the just <laughs> and yet I find it really funny as well, just when I don't have to deal with it every day. And you went to RADA? Is that, yeah. yeah. And so what was the contrast between the two then? Oh, fuck, was like planets. <laughs> two different planets. Tell me about it. What was it like? Well, I couldn't be understood for the first good while, so I had to slow down for a start. And then um, I did think that RADA was going to be filled with a load of upper-class people, but it wasn't. 
I mean, there were some there. I met some of the poshest people in my life there. Um, but there was a lot of working class people there too. Uh, Welsh, Northern English kind of people who were who were great to be around. Um, but the whole thing was, I mean, I wasn't brought up with theatre or anything like that. I didn't know that you could be an actor as a job. I wanted to be a marine biologist, really. And... Um, yeah, so this this whole world was completely new to me then. I didn't really have the kind of it was kind of there was quite a few people there that came from like acting dynasties, like acting families, um, English acting families, and I didn't have that uh, frame of reference. Mm -hmm. So like somebody would say, you know, who their parents were, and lots of people would go, "Oh my God!" and I wouldn't have a fucking clue who they were. Um, Did you feel that that mattered? In terms of getting in and getting on there? Yeah, I mean, as, as the years kind of went by and it became about the training and not necessarily about who you knew and all that sort of business. Or did that still kind of, was that still in the background all the time? You'd think it must be still in the background all yeah. the time, wasn't it? I mean, theatre is such a small world, really. Um, yeah, I'm sure it, it, it helped people. Not that they were deliberately doing anything, I don't think, to... to undermine anyone else or anything but it certainly does help I'm sure yeah. I'm sure and, it does and England is class ridden and oh, well, you can't, of course, can't yeah. get away from it mm -hmm. yeah. but was the training good I mean did you appreciate it what, what did what did you make of it and how does it crop up in your current work it crops up all the time now I I often say now that I think I was too young when I first I went 19 Um kind of 19 to 20 um, I would have I probably would have been better off going maybe 23, 24 um, but stuff still comes back and you go oh that's what that was about and like loads of things that you thought at the time this, I don't need to know this I don't want to know this is not what I want to go into um, a lot of the movement stuff at the time I remember thinking was by the shite and then I kind of tend to lead in, l lean into that kind of thing more now um, yeah can you, can you say a bit about that because I mean to a lot of people actor training it's just like well what now do they train you with I know what is the craft how, does it, how, how, do, how would it crop up for Iago for example how would you find yourself using it um, well obviously I mean Rod is big concentration on the classical training so obviously just the verse is is so important um, in your training at RADA and I really do feel that I came away with a big strong training in that way and that was what was kind of setting fire to my imagination at the time and it still does is Shakespeare and we used to do an awful lot of work on poetry in general mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I remember working on like John Donne and John Keats um, as well as kind of doing your constant work with Shakespeare and then realising this whole idea of being able to tell a story on stage yes you're f physically telling a story as well but the idea of dramatic verse as a soundscape mm-hmm mm -hmm that you're telling the story through 
the sounds like this fascinating thing in Iago is the amount of S's that he uses in the play when he speaks it's it's only a thing that you'd come across really by by working on it and all of a sudden you just realize that you're making this sound the whole time and you go what's that and and you f just do the feeling of it and the feeling is insidious it feels insidious insidious sounds like the fucking word that he would say yeah. um like there's the, in act 3 scene 3 when he starts working on um Otello's kind of subconscious about possibly Desdemona being unfaithful um just this letter s is everywhere she uh, what a, she that's so young could give out such a seeming to seal her father's eyes up close as oak he thought was witchcraft. I mean, you just it's like it's like little bad whispers all the time. Yeah. Um, you don't need to play that because if you play it, you burst it. Yep. But but it's there, and it's spotting things like that that training helped me with. Training also helps you with the idea of trusting that Shakespeare is a very particular animal and the fear I think a lot of actors have and I have it all the time with him is you feel like you're not doing anything the modern actor feels like you're not doing anything and the fact is if you can understand the text and, and speak it properly which sounds like a bullshitty thing to say and I, I, I should have a better way of phrasing that but if you serve it properly, um, that soundscape, that language, does so much work. Because we, we, we were trained in the uh, method, uh, we used to always be told that your intention and your motivation is 90% of the storytelling. It's 90% of what an audience picks up. It's why you can watch a foreign film and still get the basic kind of emotional story that's going on because we understand that psychological game that we're playing with each other we're operating on a a primate level of reading body language and facial expression and the reaction the emotional reaction of people the tiny little things um that have, that have created us as these big brained primates that, that in big communities that we we need to be able to do that it's not just the spoken word and that the spo the spoken word was only 10% of the storytelling we were told this all the time but at the same time you were studying shakespeare that they were saying the language is everything mm -hmm. and you're going how the fuck are we supposed to marry these two things and then you realize because shakespeare is so unique and singular that he, his language is that it, it is everything mm -hmm. your intention your, and your psychological motivation and characterization and physicality and tone and stress and everything is in the language and we used to argue it I used to be arguing how every single line he wrote Every single word he wrote, he was doing that. Yes. How? How could he be doing that? And th and then he was knocking out like three or four of these plays in a year. How can he be doing... And, of course, then you... I mean, you argue about Mozart writing things when he was 14 and mm -hmm. Gian Lorenzo Bernini impressing the Pope with pictures of St. Peter when he was nine or something. These are geniuses. You can't... Mm -hmm. We can't understand them. 
So how how is Shakespeare done badly? I'm not asking you to name names, <laughs> but but w w when you see people not trusting the language, what is it that you witness, and you think that is not trusting the language? I think as modern actors and modern acting now, when you approach Shakespeare with it alone the story can't take it. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I'm talking about, um, I suppose I'm talking about just, uh, if I feel it, I feel it 100% in the moment and go for it, um, that'll make it happen. It doesn't, because it bursts, the, la the language is so monumental. There was an actually a, 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 myself and Charlotte McCurry, who's uh, a brilliant actress from Belfast as well, actually. And uh, we were playing Richard II and the Queen in a, the scene where she sees him being taken away to prison to Pomfret. And uh, she's this beautiful speech with him and. Uh, when they part about, you know, two woes, you know, and all that kind of, it was really beautiful. And the first kind of passes that we went through, Jesus, we were in tears and roaring and crying and striking our breasts and fucking tearing the hair of each other and snogging the face of each other <laughs> everything. And it was just a mess of everything. You've got this big, but the language is doing it. Mm -hmm. Um. So take out all the crying, take out all the heaving chests, take out all the snot and fucking rolling around and blah, 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 and just speak it. And all of a sudden, it's the words that break your heart. That seems like such a shitty thing to say, doesn't well, no, it? Well, no, but it also implies that you let the audience, you don't get in the way of the audience's experience of those words by telling them how to feel about them. Yes, because it's not. It's, it's a different way of telling a story. Um, Modern storytelling, modern theatre, you know, theatrical storytelling is more about that. Whereas th this whole idea of a soundscape is really, really important. Um, see, there's so many phrases to do with Shakespeare that are just cast out by people, actors, directors, audience members, critics, fucking academics. They just fire these things, iambic pentameters and caesural pauses and uh, serve the text and, you know, end the line and all oh, this usual, usual, usual. And they become so hackneyed in a way that they just become things to say when you're talking about Shakespeare. So I'm always trying to re-evaluate exactly what I mean or what I was taught so that I understand it in a real way rather than just uh, lip service. And I think this idea of it being soundscape, that you have to allow an audience feel something because of the way it sounds. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah. That's where your, your work has to go. It's weird. Okay, so so you mentioned Richard II, which you won an award for, <laughs> I believe. Um, and uh, um, uh, Irish Times uh, Drama Award um, for your portrayal of Richard II, mm. which was magnificent, Marty. Um, uh, so you spent months embedded in long, great 
bouts of Shakespeare, not just the normal length of a play, but um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, four, five put together, as it were, yeah. as adapted by Marc Arrow. What, how did you? What was it like to immerse yourself in that soundscape and to take that soundscape to lots of different places as well, not just around Ireland but also to yeah. America as well? Yeah. Did you find that soundscape landing differently? Did your relationship with it change? Talk to me about that immersion in the language that happened then, because that was unusual. Because in Shakespeare's time, they wouldn't have done that at all. No. Yeah, you know, they would have done it a, a few times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. maybe there would have been some some revivals for for certain reasons, but. That this is an unusual thing to do, this length of time. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Um, you see, I was getting to play Richard, who I'd, uh, who I'd been kind of playing with in my head for about 12 years, mm -hmm. since college, since Rada. Everybody at Rada had a character, a Shakespearean character that they wanted to play desperately and kept asking to work on speeches and everything. Jamie Parker was in my year who did a very, very successful Henry V and Globe. And he was obsessed with Henry V at college. All he ever did, wanted to do was Henry V. Um, and mine was Richard, so we were... Uh, it was it was a long time in the kind of making for me, thinking about him. But he has some of the most beautiful verse in the whole canon. And... And it sets him apart in the play, because, see, again, this is a soundscape thing. When Richard speaks, you can even see this in the physical play, in the physical text. When Richard speaks, you get these big, beautiful uh, blocks of speech, of kind of perfectly metered lines. Um, and there's, there's no jaggedy shapes, it's a lovely big, you know, nice block shapes every time he's all nice and neat and kind of stately looking and then when and John of Gaunt actually looks like that too but um, the the other lads the new order if you like Bolingbroke and that crowd you look at their verse on the page and it's all it's all it's, it's all all broken and it's like crazy crazy paving in comparison and this is the new way of talking, mm -hmm. yeah. which has brought then. Uh, this is what was great to watch the the four plays together, as you get to, as by the time you get to Henry the Fifth, or Henry the the Henry the Fourth plays, Henry the Fourth plays. Shakespeare's bringing this idea up into a, a world up onto a level that no one had experienced before. I mean, this new way of just producing mm. dialogue. You know, this this new crazy kind of crazy paving way I always kind of said it's a crazy paving but um, yeah so that that getting to speak that stuff that big beautiful poetry of Richard's um, and and to disappear into it for months was it's kind of amazing it is amazing and then you get lost because this is a guy that was there's no problems. I mean, God will look after me. Mm. And he completely believes that. He completely believes that he was chosen by God. And there's such... I mean, that is what that soundscape is telling you. These big, long, beautiful pieces of speaking. When his life is in peril. But he 
still manages to do this talk. And it tells you so much about him just listening to it in comparison to the rest of the company, the rest of the characters on stage. You just hear this man who's out of touch. He sounds old-fashioned. He... He sounds... He sounds like an alien compared to the rest of them. He talks in poetic metaphor and simile all the time. Has big, long, drawn out, uh, you know, poetic images that he wants to explore in order to explain how he feels to you and everything. And you're going, you are wasting so much time. Whereas Bolingbroke is just getting to the point with the lads and they're going to cut your head off. You know, it's. It's kind of fascinating that that just the sound of that, if you couldn't understand the words, which lots of people claim they can't, it's rubbish, but even just hearing it as a sound, this guy goes on at length, these big, you know, long, beautiful, kind of flowing kind of speeches, and then the urgency of these new guys. There's no doubt in your mind that this new order is taking over. There's no doubt in your mind that he is, that Richard is the last of a race. Hmm. See, I think Shakespeare killed God in that play. Because when Richard is the last person to believe, even though they all say that they still believe this, they're talking shite now, but I mean, they're complete uh, hypocrites. You can't still believe in serving God if you're saying well, we're going to kill his representative on Earth. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and they do. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they pick and choose what they want to believe. I'm not sure what's different nowadays. But um, to actually do that, to actually have Richard realise that he's just a man, in that last speech in the prison, and he says, you know, I, I'm, I'm just... I'm just a, a guy, I'm just a person, but what actually am I? Because I've never been just a person before. And without the crown, without the kingship, I have no name. You know, that's oh, fucking heartbreaking. He, I used to remember saying to Gary in Mars, I have no surname. I don't know what my second name is. You didn't need one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. it's, who do you, when you're filling in a form in the dole office, <laughs> what do you write? You need to write King Richard. Previous <laughs> occupation. God's representative on the... Completely. Yeah. Yeah. So all that taken away from you, what are you? And I think when... It must have been huge. Audiences watching a king sitting there saying... "I'm After spending the whole play saying that God is going to strike you all dead on my behalf, yeah. uh, he will send armies of pestilence. He is mustering in his clouds above armies of pestilence and they will strike your children yet unborn and unbegot. You know, it's... Well, it's, it's, it's the thing about about how can we reproduce what things meant to the Elizabethan audience. Yeah. Like, you know, the witches at the start, you know, of, uh, of that other play. Yes. Uh, um, um, you know, <laughs> that would have been a big deal. Mm -hmm. yeah? and, and to question the divine right, that's huge. And as you say, you need a text, a language, which can get you back to how important those stakes were. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have that, then then we're just referring to something so outdated, we can't really relate. We can't relate to it, exactly. Yeah. Um, we, ca we can relate, but we can relate to to the, the whole idea of someone being completely um, illusioned. Yeah. 
And then the dreadful feeling, but also the release of disillusionment. Mm. Um, I think it was, I remember, I think it might have been Gary who said it. Um, in that big speech, when he his reali- his moment of realization, when he fully, for the first time in his life, engages as a human being, he's killed a number of seconds later. He's stabbed to death. Um, which is why it was really important for us to have him wrapped up in the in the tarp or in the plastic and thrown out like meat, um, because we are only meat. Yeah, that was like a, a huge rambling answer to that question. That's but it was why a, it's a huge rambling. <laughs> it is. No, look, um, topic. W- one of the things that Gary did, Gary Hines, the director, did with that play was um, was um, cross gender casting. Mm. So, which female Shakespeare character do you wish to play? <laughs> oh God! Um, you can have a go at a few. You don't have to name the definitive one now. What appeals about Solomon? Wow. Um, I'd have to wait a load of years yet, but uh, I, I love uh, uh, Queen Margaret in the Henry VI into Richard III play, plays. Um, I think I think there's something about Cleopatra, the politician, that needs to be explored in a production of that play that I've never been fully satisfied with. And I think part of it is the curse that she's supposed to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Which is a terrible fucking stress to put on anybody to play a part. You know, woman or man. Um, So, maybe to take that out of the equation and just let her be seen, just let her be seen as a character, as a political character. No, because she knows. I mean, she's putting some fucking interesting games in that yeah. in that play. Um, and the big important thing about her is that she's middle aged. That's what's happening. And maybe just maybe she actually fell in love. So it's those are t- and Viola's it's great crack. Yeah, man, she's kind of brilliant. But uh, I'm sure there's tons more. I'm sure there's tons more. But yeah, Margaret has some brilliant stuff. You haven't been watching The Hollow Crown, the BBC. I haven't seen the second one yet, no. Yeah, the second rendition. Sophie Oconado's aged considerably, obviously, from the first place. It's yes, now playing mad Queen mad Margaret, Margaret, who suddenly yeah. like, appears suddenly to curse everybody. That's right, from France. Yeah. 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 Is, oh. From that's forth the kennel of thy womb. Yes. Oh, wow. But that's that's interesting to compare with some of the things you've been saying about transposing Shakespeare from the stage where that soundscape is a viscerally mm. felt thing mm. to um, television and, and film and what you then do and the choices people have had to make in order to to still engage with the work while also having this this vaster landscape of imagery at their disposal if yeah. they so wish to reinforce it with. Anyway, we haven't got time to do that now. Um, <laughs> um, uh, to, to talk to me, to, look, just as we've got in our last 10 minutes, let's go back to kind of first beginnings and when did you, can you remember the first play you saw or the first theatre that you saw that inspired you to sort of explore acting? Yeah, weirdly. It was um, Eileen and uh, Killian in Disco Pigs. 
and Belfast and the OMAC, the old OMAC. And, uh, Is that Eileen Walsh and Killian Murphy? Murphy yeah. 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 I'd never been to a theatre before. Why did I go to that? I think it might have been for, with a youth club or something. I was about 16 or something. And I was kind of getting into the whole idea of drama at school and people were telling me that I should do it, you see, and saying that I was good at it and all this. And, um, yeah, we went to see Disco Pigs, and I was like, I'm going, what the fuck? Like, I couldn't believe this. This was incredible. These two nutters. And the language and everything. Oh, my God, this was it was amazing. Um, but, yeah, that was definitely, that's the kind of earliest thing I can remember, the earliest kind of play that I remember just unresponding to quite heavily, yeah. And what about here? What about the Abbey? Do you remember the first thing you saw here? I had never been to the Abbey until I came back to work in it. Came back to Ireland and work in it. And the first thing I saw was Howie the Rookie down in the Peacock uh, with Aidan Kelly and Carl Shields. Um, again, another big wow! Like, again. And funnily enough, two plays that are big soundscapes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Two writers that really deal with the idea of the sound of language. I mean, Mark is... Mark was like a little mini Shakespeare, really. Mm. And did, did did that crop up? Did you discuss that, his work in comparison to Shakespeare's when he was working on the Druid Shakespeare? Um, I can't remember any kind of direct kind of conversation in that way, but obviously... Obviously, it was always kind of in the background, you know, because he writes a lot in verse, and um, I mean, he was—he's such a brilliant choice to have edited, the, you know, those plays. And he has such a reaction to them, like a genuine understanding and reaction to them, that he was great to speak to. That I was—I was able to get the answers and the reactions from him in terms of the sound of language. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, you talk about the kind of the psychological life of characters as well, but Shakespeare gives you that in the in the language. Mm -hmm. um, even like in an indirect way, like with Iago, it's it's kind of an indirect way in the language. The feeling of saying the stuff in your mouth, it's weird, but just the feeling that it gives you making the sounds. This is how language is born, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you crack your toe and you shout, fuck, it, there's a reason why there's a build-up feeling of an F and the explosion of the K at the end. Yeah. Um, it's a release of anger. Um, I mean, the curse word fuck is brilliant because the F bit I mean, there's, <laughs> it's brilliant because there's such uh, you could do like there's psychoanalysis in it. The the F is the desperate attempt to keep the anger in, you know, the closed kind of behind the teeth and the lip being bitten in an F, and then the just that ah oh, fuck it I don't care and the release of a big K at yeah. the end is I mean that is how that curse word was born surely, yeah. um, it is about sound and suiting the sound to the emotion. Um, Actually, I mean, he's he's literally writing at that fundamental level. Mm. 
It's extraordinary. And also, I mean, it could well have been to do with the fact that he was like, he had to get this stuff written, you know, to yeah. feed himself, to keep the company yeah. going and all that sort of stuff. It, and it was churning it out is maybe too vulgar a way to put it, but he had to write a lot and quickly. Yeah, yeah especially and when... act at yeah. the same time during the day. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, anyway, um, some last things. Um, Joe Dowling. So now he's directed a lot of Shakespeare before. What's it like working with Joe with somebody who's a seasoned director of Shakespeare? What's the, what's that like? The best thing about this production and about his approach to it was his his own feeling of confidence in the material. He knows it works, and he doesn't panic. And look at this, the the brilliant stage that we're working on. It's empty, and I think. At the minute, this might change in another load of years, but I think at the minute for me, Shakespeare works best with a visually empty stage. Mm. And because, you know, as lots of people say, the language is then allowed is allowed to come to the fore. Um, I had loved those kind of... To, ha to have, you know, that takes balls to be able to do that, you know, to go... Mm. Let's just give them. There's nothing. There's nowhere. There's nothing to hide behind, yeah. or mess around with, or fiddle with, or climb up on, or whatever, and all the the rest of it. Um, so you're having to use the language. Uh, you have to be very muscular with the language, and that's what Joe was kind of encouraging. That was that was the best thing about this production, anyways. And so the future. What would you like to play in Shakespeare next? All of it. I <laughs> know oh, you've always got different ones in your head. Um, King John at the minute is kind of rattling around in my head for some reason and has been for about two years. I think I read something at one point, somebody saying that uh, that it wasn't good or that it was one of the poorer ones. And that immediately wants you to kind of go, really? And get into it but I mean there's and also I'm, I'm very taken by the historical character of Eleanor of Aquitaine anyways and she obviously appears in it but um, yeah that's definitely a play that I'm interested in Richard III uh, very interested in uh, and the Scottish couple very interested in Um but yeah, essentially, all of the comedies don't do it much for me. Why not? I don't know. I just never. I I think I lean towards more maudlin, dark things. Um, you were in Stoops. She stoops to conquer here, weren't you? Like, yeah, a couple of years ago. I know, but I mean, I like. I'm happier when, when things are a bit dark and morose and. Is that, is that Belfast? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'd rather, like, I would rather sit and watch, like, back to back um, Swedish depression rather than, like, a box set of fucking friends or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's just, a, that's just a taste thing, isn't it? Yeah, I just find the tragedies and the histories are. Now that could change again. I mean, yeah. Look, we've run out of time, Marty Ray. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. That was great. <laughs>